1: the best way to fish like a local what if you could book a trip with an experienced local guide with the click of a button now you can with fishing booker
0: now anyone can access enjoyable fishing experiences anywhere take the legwork
1: out of setting up that trip and explore more than 30,000 fishing experiences at your fingertips just go to fishingbooker.com to get started and book your trip with a local guide
0: that's fishingbooker.com fishing booker fish like a local From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Weekend Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan.
1: The timber industry and environmental groups haven't exactly seen eye to eye over the years but the opposing sides are one step closer to reaching a compromise on how private forests are managed in Oregon. Billed as a historic proposal by Oregon Governor Kate Brown, the new framework brought together representatives of timber companies, landowners, conservation groups, and fishing organizations. They first announced their intention to hammer out a deal in February of 2020, and this week they said they'd reached the beginnings of an agreement. We were able to put down the contentious situations that we've had in the past, said Jim James with the Oregon Small Woodlands Association. I think that's an extreme positive for the state of Oregon. You might be wondering what brought the two sides to the table after decades of fighting. It's a good question. But both sides had political and financial incentives to bury their respective hatchets, or falling axes. We probably should say that'd be more appropriate. On the financial side, they wanted to avoid spending a fortune on a huge ballot initiative fight that was set to go down last year. Environmental groups had filed initiatives limiting their use of aerial pesticides. In response, timber groups filed their own set of ballots that would reimburse landowners when regulations limited their ability to log. Ballot fights cost millions of dollars in advertising, and Oregon Governor Kate Brown has taken credit for convincing each side to avoid those costs and come to the negotiation table. On the political side, timber companies are looking to avoid harsh restrictions on aerial pesticide spraying. The practice isn't popular in the state, and forest companies decided to come to the table and hash out a compromise rather than risk the legislature taking action. For their part, environmental groups don't want to be blamed for wildfires. Stephen Beta, an assistant professor of history at Oregon University, told Courthouse News back in 2020 that he believes these groups have realized that logging can play a key role in forest management. If environmentalists block logging in an area that breaks out in a fire, fingers could start pointing in their direction. In 2020, the two sides agreed to begin negotiations. Last week, they agreed on a basic framework for a deal to protect riverbanks and streamsides, improve forest roads, and allow for adaptive management of private forests. Now, the real work begins. The Associated Press reports that the next step is to introduce a bill in the state legislature making the changes to the Forest Practices Act agreed to by both sides. Then, the Oregon Board of Forestry will oversee a rulemaking process to develop a habitat conservation plan. That plan will have to be approved by federal regulators and will work to allow logging and other industries to continue with a minimal effect on wildlife. As you can probably guess, the process will take years, and the two sides will likely disagree on some of the details, but right now, both sides seem optimistic. This is truly an exciting time to be a part of the Oregon forest sector, said David Beckholt, representative of the Coalition of Forest Companies. This is a new era that will produce the best outcomes for Oregon's private forests and the communities that depend on them to provide clean water, recreation, renewable wood products, and year-round family wage jobs. This week, we've got 30 by 30, block management, lasers, and so much more But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was uh, doing a lot of driving. I did some serious traveling, put some distance on the truck and the dog and myself, and headed out to northwest Montana to try to pin down some wily public land pheasants. Wild pheasants on publicly accessible land are hard to nail down this time of year. I love the challenge and with disgustingly hot temps for one of my favorite months on the calendar, I headed not to the mountains, but to the prairies, up to the northeast corner of the state. Country I had not been in for a great while. What drew me to that region are the giant pieces of cooperative block management, which is Montana's private land public access program. Snort and I put on a ton of miles, often running to cut off wily birds. We got a few... My, uh, my shotgunning was very poor, but we had plenty of opportunities. A couple of things I want to share with you, and I am doing something that I should not do for this example, which is to name names. The McCabe block management area, which Snort and I hunted Saturday afternoon and ended up with only one sage grouse, which was hanging a leg when it flew away. So if you were around that area and lost a bird... Snort and I got your back. (laughs) Anyway, at one of the sign-in boxes close to Highway 2, I was confronted with a long, poop-smeared string of toilet paper here in front of this incredible access program to private land, and someone decided to literally poop on it in a very public fashion. I want you to know that I picked up your poop-smeared toilet paper It was awful. I didn't have a trash bag, so I had to kind of gingerly stuff it into a corner of the truck bed where it wouldn't fly around and touch all the rest of my stuff. I sleep in there, by the way. I didn't want to do this. It was gross, but I could not stand the fact that a landowner, someone who is giving a lot of access to a lot of people they generally do not know for not a whole hell of a lot in return could show up and see what someone thought of their generosity in the form of feces and just, you know, say, we're not going to be in block management next year. Now, these sign-in boxes, they all have a map and they have some information on the back. This particular form that I'm going to read directly off the map uh, will let you know what we could stand to lose. It says, in 1996, 20 participating landowners consisting of 28,309 acres Form this BMA. At the very end of this, it says, Hunters, police yourselves and report any misconduct or violations. That's the part I was getting at. Hunters, police yourselves. Over 28,000 acres of hunting access enrolled in a program that is constantly undermined and under attack. It exists in a very fragile state. How fragile, you may ask? Well, here's an example for you. Fort Keogh, another property, this one owned by the United States Department of Agriculture and located basically in Mile City, Montana, is enrolled in the block management program and sees approximately 1,300 hunter days a season. However, this chunk of 55,000 enrolled acres is currently closed to access for reasons basically unknown. At first, at the very beginning of the season, when it was super hot and dry, the BMA was closed due to fire danger. But once the fire danger subsided, they got roughly three inches of rain out there, Access was still off-limits to the BMA. If you look a little deeper at the history of Fort Keogh and Access, It wasn't very long ago when a couple of knuckleheads drove through a wet, cultivated field instead of on the nice gravel road leading to and from the fishing access site. That action, by two individuals, resulted in no more public use of the fishing access site. The point is, don't take these places for granted. It only takes one or two users out of 1,300 to ruin a good thing. If you are someone who likes to take advantage of these programs, but doesn't bother to pick up trash, or maybe politely inform the occasional hunter who's breaking the rules by, like, driving on wet roads or blocking a gate, it is possible that those small actions could lead to big negative results. We're in the thick of it here in Montana. It is deep into hunting season. Folks want to fill tags. They want to get those last couple of birds. I get it be respectful, understand the great opportunities that we have. Moving on, Biden's 30 by 30 conservation plan. If you've been following conservation news for the last few months, or if you listened to episode 124 here on The Week in Review, you've heard about President Biden's America the Beautiful Initiative, also known as 30 by 30. Under this plan, the federal government aims to conserve 30% of America's lands and waters by the year 2030. Right now, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, about 11% of America's freshwater ecosystems, 12% of its land, and 23% of its oceans are protected. 30 by 30 would recruit federal, state, and tribal agencies, along with private landowners and other stakeholders, to bump those numbers up to 30% in the next decade. The various federal agencies charged with implementing this initiative haven't given us many details about exactly how this will work, and you've probably guessed the biggest question. What kind of land and water conservation will count towards the 30% threshold? Well, the Department of the Interior released a fact sheet the same day as Biden's executive order that provided examples of land that is considered, quote, conserved. Wilderness lands, national parks, national wildlife refuges, state parks, national monuments, and private lands with permanent conservation easements all made the list. Of course, land and water ecosystems can be effectively conserved, even if they don't fit into any of these categories. Multi-use land programs, such as, uh, I don't know, a national forest or state forest, have, in some cases, protected threatened plants and animals in many states. At the behest of the Biden administration, the Departments of the Interior, Agriculture, and Commerce, along with the Council on Environmental Quality, issued a 24-page report outlining the basic goals and principles of the America the Beautiful initiative. Among their core principles for this project are honoring private property rights, supporting voluntary stewardship efforts, and supporting locally-led conservation. The agency spoke with a wide variety of stakeholders before writing the report, and as a result of these discussions, they committed to including the contributions of farmers, ranchers, woodlot owners, and private landowners in determining which lands and waters count as conserved. They also issued six recommended focus areas for state and federal agencies, some of which directly benefit hunters and anglers. For example, they encourage federal agencies to expand fish and wildlife habitat and corridors, and highlight President Trump's efforts to enhance the winter range of deer, elk, and pronghorn. The report states this initiative could be expanded to include other land managers to build partnerships with working ranchers and other landowners, and to conserve corridors and seasonal ranges for other species. The recommendations also include a dedicated section for increasing access to outdoor recreation. Here is a quote Additional conservation can and should improve access for hunting, fishing, hiking, boating, and other forms of outdoor recreation. Hunters, anglers, and other outdoor enthusiasts have not only played a positive role in stewarding our nation's lands, waters, and wildlife, but they also generate significant economic benefits to local communities. In other words, the report acknowledges that expanding access to hunters and anglers will be a key part of 30 by 30 which I am obviously a fan of. Witt Fosberg, president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, believes that 30 by 30 will be a positive for hunting and fishing. Based on what he's seeing, he thinks the initiative will focus on conservation, not preservation. Rather than push to establish a bunch of new national monuments and parks, the agencies are working to be as inclusive as possible. The TRCP spoke with many of the agencies involved in putting this plan together, and Fosberg is confident the Biden administration is committed to preserving a variety of landscapes, both working in wilderness, private and public. In short, it's saying conserved land will include wildlife refuges, but it will also include well-managed multi-use land, as well as private land that, you know, hopefully has the proper long-term easements. Of course, none of this has stopped political advocacy groups from characterizing 30x30 30 30 as a power play by the Biden administration and its environmentalist backers. Here in Montana, an out-of-state group, the American Stewards of Liberty, has been giving presentations about the, quote, 30 by 30 land grab. They tell attendees that private land is a target under 30 by 30 and argue that property owners will lose control of their land if they participate in any federal conservation program according to a report in the Great Falls Tribune. As just stated, it's true that private land is among the targets of 30 by 30 and it's true we don't have as many details about 30 by 30 as we like. But if you want to say that it's nothing more than a federal land grab, you have to argue that all four agencies are lying about priorities and goals, and you have to play that scene from Blazing Saddles a few times in your head. Land grab. Land grab. See snatch. Unfortunately, there is one thing that stands between me and that property. The rightful owners. That Mel Brooks knew how to make them. Politicians and officials lie. That's true. But the land grab theory mischaracterizes what we know about 30 by 30, and it's being used to scare people into political action and financial contributions. Let this be a lesson to the feds. If you roll out a big idea, Roll out big facts to go along with it, or the vagary will be turned into fuel against your big idea. Fosberg believes we'll know even more by the end of the year. In December, a coalition of agencies is expected to publish an atlas that breaks down exactly which lands the federal government will consider conserved. Once this is published, we'll have a much clearer sense of the criteria they're planning to use and what kinds of lands and waters could be added to reach the 30% goal. In today's political climate, it's easy to support our side and oppose the other side without doing our own research, but the hunting and fishing community is one of the most politically diverse communities in the country, and we owe it to ourselves and to each other to get our facts straight. We can protect wildlife, conserve the landscape, and help hunters and anglers do more of what we love best. Currently, there are more private acres set aside specifically for wildlife than all of our national parks combined in the lower 48 private property owners are some of the nation's leading conservationists. Conserving 30% of our nation's lands and waters doesn't have to conflict with private property principles. If you'd like to learn more, and you should, check out HuntFish3030.com. This website was launched by a coalition of hunting and fishing groups that all support the 30x30 30 30 initiative, including Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, Pheasants Forever, the TRCP, the National Wild Turkey Federation, and the National Rifle Association. Check out their statements in regards to 30 by 30 and for more details about why hunters and anglers should know more, that's HuntFish3030.com.
0: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often as the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase that's heart and soil dot C O use the code me eater. Hey, here's a simple, but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for from family vacations to their grandkids. Graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want. And mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting auraframes.com. That's A U R A frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code Meat Eater because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best selling frame with that code. The code being Meat Eater. Auraframes.com, promo code Meat Eater.
1: We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Moving on to the neglected Rise of the Machines desk. A company called Carbon Robotics has developed a self-driving robot that targets weeds in agricultural fields and blasts them with lasers strong enough to cut through metal. The laser weeder, which is a name that gets right to the point, could be an enormous deal for the health of the country's food system and wildlife habitat. Right now, when it comes to weed control, farmers are between a rock and a hard place. If they do nothing, weeds run rampant, and studies have shown that more than half of an average corn or soybean crop can be lost. On the other hand, if they use herbicides, yields stay high, but a host of consequences follow. For instance, some herbicides kill not only the target weeds, but also the microbes in the soil. Those microbes are responsible for breaking down organic matter and making the micronutrients in that compostable material available for crops to absorb. So, when those microbes die, food crops can't take in as many nutrients, and consequently the nutrient content of food declines. It's important to note that herbicide use in this decline is just one of many factors, but a 2009 study published by the American Society for Horticultural Science documented a 40% decline in vegetable nutrient content in certain areas of the U.S. and the U.K. over the previous 50 years. Another huge problem is the phenomenon known as herbicide drift, which is also the least fun of the Fast and Furious franchise. I don't have friends. I got family. When one farmer or lawn owner or highway median supervisor uses herbicide, it often blows onto another farmer's field or onto the flowers that pollinators visit or onto the nests of nearby pheasants or it washes into a trout stream. Herbicides can have broad spectrum applications or very specific applications. In either case, you really want that stuff to stick to its target even if you don't care about the side effects, it's all pretty expensive stuff, so you want to be thrifty. It also might be making farmers very sick. Although the research is still developing, some evidence suggests that the herbicide glyphosate may lead to cancer, and that another, paraquat, may cause Parkinson's disease and Roundup, a chemical as common as coffee on the farm, has tens of thousands of plaintiffs in a class-action lawsuit in regards to the folks who did the spraying, catching cancer. I could go on, but you get it. We need herbicide alternatives. And if we don't do anything, eventually soil health goes down so much that we can't produce enough food, and, you know, real cataclysmic system failures follow that. Enter the weed lasering robot. The carbon robotics machine Kinda looks like a Zamboni with tractor tires. Under the chassis, a series of cameras capture images of the crop rows. The computer's artificial intelligence determines whether a certain seedling is soy or lamb's quarter, and then the laser cooks that lamb's quarter all in a fraction of a second. But wait, there's more. Have you ever tried replanting the same raised bed with a different crop only to have last year's garden return? One season's crop is the next season's weed, as they say. And, in a recent interview in Forbes magazine, the founder of Carbon Robotics, Paul Mikesell, gave the example of growing onions where you had previously grown carrots. Before, the robot had to spare carrots and zap everything else. But now, the AI can recognize the onions and zap leftover carrots. As Cell put it, Okay, it's onion time. Let's kill the carrots. Isn't that catchy? If there's ever a weed laser zapping movie, starring The Rock maybe, that's going to be the tagline. It's lame, but let's face it, as far as the garden puns and movies go, Joe Dirt, dare I say, cult classic, nailed it. Life's a garden, dig it? You make it work for you. Now, if you're getting the feeling that a 10,000 pound artificial intelligence robot that can kill 100,000 weeds an hour might be expensive, Uh, you'd be correct. However, pesticides are also very expensive. You can't just drop by Ace Hardware and grab something off the shelf for some of this stuff. Weeds have adapted to stronger and stronger herbicides, and each new formulation takes more and more chemical innovation. That chemistry doesn't come cheap. In fact, according to the 2021 Crop Cost and Return Guide issued by Purdue University, Herbicides now cost between $50 and $60 an acre, which is up from $18 an acre in 2015. It's now the second highest cost on a farmer's balance sheet behind fertilizer. We spoke to one of the paper's authors, Michael Langemeyer, who said that herbicides follow an almost inevitable upward cost slope. Weeds get better, herbicide gets more complex, prices go up. Obviously, this can't go on forever. Eventually, the soil quality crashes or farmers just can't afford effective herbicide or both. Langmeyer stressed that inventions like the laser weeder are just one aspect of the precision agriculture that's been developing for the last 15 years. AI robotics, mapping technology, all of these things are allowing farmers to target exactly where to apply herbicide or pesticide or manure and use the smallest possible amounts. Whether you think AI is ag's ultimate solution, or if you think that leading a consumer revolution to get people to pay way more for hand-tended crops is the way to go, you should both find solace in what old Joe Dirt said. Life's a garden. Dig it. But seriously, if you're listening to this show and you do not currently hunt or fish or garden, there's a lot of crossover between harvesting food from a raised bed and food off the hoof for the wing. There's still time to throw some garlic in a pot if you want to start right now. Moving on to the Alaska desk. Back in June, we celebrated the temporary deferment of Wildlife Special Action Request 2101, which aimed to close an enormous chunk of public land in Alaska to non-subsistence hunters. Well, that deferment was in fact temporary. The exact same proposal to close Units 23 and 26A is back on the table to take effect in 2022. As a quick refresher, a local body named the Northwest Arctic Subsistence Regional Advisory Council is claiming that outside hunters coming to the area are disrupting caribou migration patterns. In response, they have prompted a vote by the Federal Subsistence Board on closing the area to non-locals. If the vote passes, this stretch of public land, as big as the United Kingdom, would be closed not just to hunters from the lower 48, but also to Alaskans who don't meet the criteria that define a subsistence hunter. As a quick recap, there have been no disruptions to caribou migrations that have been demonstrated. Even if they have been, the law that governs these decisions says that federal lands have to remain open for hunting, fishing, and trapping by all federally qualified users unless population numbers are threatened, not migration patterns or behavior, but the actual number of animals in the herd. Caribou numbers in this area are well inside a healthy range, and non-subsistence hunting take takes up 2.5% of the total annual harvest. So the conservation argument for this closure is uh, not very strong. As we covered before, this decision is about more than a piece of land out in the boonies. It's about the dangerous precedent it would set. In 2020, smaller units further south, 13A and 13B, were closed to non-local moose and caribou hunters without much fanfare. And now, in addition to this potential closure of 23 and 26A, Three other potential closures are coming before the Federal Subsistence Board that would block outsiders from hunting black-tailed deer in southeast Alaska. So once again, we need to make our voices heard to ensure this doesn't happen. The telephone meeting where the Federal Subsistence Board is taking public comment is happening this Wednesday, November 17, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Alaska time. That's 7 to 9 central time you listeners on the East Coast, you might have to stay up a bit past bedtime, but you're living in the dark anyway. The toll-free number is 888-942-9690, passcode 607 Six zero seven one eight zero six. Remember, last time we called, we only got them to defer the vote, maybe they thought we'd forget. This time, let's make sure they vote and vote no. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can always get a hold of me by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. Let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. And I know it seems early because the weather is so warm, but we're creeping in on that time where you should consider giving that loved one the gift that they really love. A steel chainsaw. (laughs) or a pole saw, or a falling axe, or a weed blower. You know, something with some muscle. Go to www.steeldealers.com and find a local, knowledgeable steel dealer near you that will help you find the perfect orange and white, powerful, clean, quiet, possibly electric steel chainsaw for the one you love. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. at seafoamworks.com to learn more.